All right, Jenny. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining up and meeting up and and uh, and agreeing to, to chat. It's good to have you on the show. So thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. Sure, I'm happy to be here. So I, I wanted to start. Um, I know we were talking briefly before we started recording about um, the work that you do, but I would love to learn how one gets involved in hospice care generally. What what happened in your life, or what? path led you into that field generally um, as, a, as a career, as a place where you're going to spend a lot of time? Um, I think when you're in nursing school, you hear very little about hospice care or home care. Everyone talks about facilities and you have to go work at a hospital to get your skill. And so you kind of get just cattle called into this direction. Um, I had the great fortune to get a job in the ICU because I had been a tech in the ER while I was in nursing school to get some experience. Um, and I got to be a, a new nurse in the ICU, which is sometimes kind of um, unusual. Um, that's usually a place for highly skilled people. But I also got a great education. And my temperament, my personality, um, I wasn't the typical ICU nurse. Usually ICU nurses are very focused and fixated on the chemicals and the numbers and the machines. Um, I found I had a great strength in the softer side of things and that those things were important. I could do them. I was a good nurse, but people would always call for help from me when someone was passing. And I, I kept this kit in my locker way back when I worked in the ICU of a CD player with music and hand lotions that I could rub on people's hands. And, and I really enjoyed making a person presentable and ready for their family to say goodbye. I thought it was so important for the family. Um, and so I kind of got into this niche. And as the years went by, I started not being resentful, but disliking my 12-hour my shifts in the hospital where everyone's on a ventilator, nobody's talking. It's... Um, a lot of people are at their end of life, and I wondered why. Why are they here? Um, the, first of all, this is a terrible place to die. Um, but also, how did they get in such bad shape? So um, I answered it. This was when Craigslist was big. <laughs> I answered a Craigslist ad for kind of a part-time hustle in home care, doing home health and hospice. And, and it... I loved it. So very soon after, I traded my full-time for my part-time. And then I kept my part-time job working some weekend shifts, and I wanted to stay involved in critical care and, and how important it was. But as the years have gone on, it, um, hospice is such a beautiful place to be, and you have to have those skills. So I'm a manager. I lead a team of all different disciplines of people. And I tell them all the time and at, at, at the interview phase, you have to have fantastic skills, but you won't use them every day. You know, when you need them, you have to be able to start an IV or deal with a person whose veins have collapsed and they're dehydrated and they're at the end of their life. Like you have to be able to have the skills and the resources. But sometimes you'll spend your entire day helping a family deal with where someone's going to live when that person dies or helping a family figure out how they're going to get someone here from, from Ohio to say their goodbyes. And 
Um, we need a priest that speaks Vietnamese. Who do I know that I can call? You know, a lot of our days are spent figuring out the end of this beautiful story. And what I tell people that I'm really passionate about is that you only get once for this, right? You only get once to, for the people that are here, the person that has passed, they're dead and gone. They're, they're done using their body. They're no longer here. But for the people that are here, that was the one time they lost their mom. That was the one time they lost their dad. You only get one time that your favorite grandma Georgia dies. Yeah. And so, you know, there's no redos and, and we have to do it right. So sorry, I went off on a no, excited tangent. <laughs> for people, for people who are just listening to this and, and don't know that much about hospice and its goals, what it is, speak a little bit about that and, and what hospice is generally, what, what it provides to the general community. Well, that is a huge problem in this country. The statistics show us that we have done a terrible job connecting the dots of the people that need it, connecting it to the resources in a timely way. Um, the hospice benefit is, is paid for 100% by Medicare, Medicaid, and most commercial insurances. This is available to everyone. Um, with a diagnosis that um, would be reasonable to be terminal within six months. So the, the worry is, oh, there's all these people out there getting these resources for too long. That's really not what happens. The problem, so let me paint the picture of all the things a person gets. So when a person comes on hospice care, they immediately have access to a full team of specialists. They now have a doctor, the medical director. They have hospice nurses, hospice and palliative care. I know we'll talk a little about that side of the house too. Um, they have a chaplain. They have a social worker that is devoted to end-of-life care that helps with advanced care planning, helps get everything set up for a person. They have our CNAs, which are aides that do all the bathing, and they immediately get um, comfort medications that help ease pain and nausea and anxiety. Sleep is a big issue in hospice. Quality restorative sleep at night so that during the day you can live your life. You know, that's what we always tell people is that hospice is about living. Yeah. Um, so what we've found in this country, and we, I look at statistics from all over the world, we often send a referral and start the hospice, pay, the, the hospice process when a person has 13 days or less of life. More tragically is when people have two days left of life. I mean, I have, I've had patients that have died within hours of me being there for the admit. So they didn't get the comfort kit and the aid coming every day and bathing them and making them feeling fresh and dressed nicely. The family didn't get to come have a family meeting with the social worker. They didn't get to have the chaplain that helped them work through things. You know, it's such a fascinating, when a person knows they're going to die, the psychology of that is so different. You and I have never experienced it or I assume um, sometimes people know they're going to die and then there's a weird twist of fate and they don't. But for the most part, when people are certified for hospice and have a six months or less prognosis, they look at things differently. They want to do things 
differently. They want to, um, sometimes they want to have fun. They want to enjoy, you know, we talk about quality over quantity and that there are some ways to prolong your life by a few days that are miserable. Yeah. But we also know, and I don't, I don't know if how journalistic you are, if you're into these statistics, but statistically people actually live longer on hospice, hmm. contrary to what people would think. But if you are clean, pain-free, awake, alert, your wife is feeling good and her stress is reduced, your, um, your family unit is cared for, you don't have to worry about those things. I mean, even down to the, the operational pieces, you think about li living in your home. I don't know how often you have to go to Walgreens every month, but um, the caregiver burden, we work so much on caregiver burden and caregiver fatigue. We take away people having to go pick up prescriptions. We get everything delivered. We take away the burden of who's paying for wipes and incontinence briefs. We take care of all that. We deliver it to the home. Um, some families are cr already crying by the time I'm explaining this hospice benefit because the siblings have been fighting over whose turn it is to buy Depends or who's going to pick up the medicines or they've been chinching on how much they're giving of medications to make them last, last longer. Um, so it, it's uh, statistically people live longer. People have the quality, the we work really hard on things that, that nurses and that caregivers and doctors and other specialty fields don't always think about. Mm -hmm. You know, in the hospital, it's nothing to take your labs at 3 in the morning and the lights are on all the time and you hear that has its own set of problems. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing we do in hospice is we try to get you on a schedule where the rest of the family is awake when you're awake because we want you to have conversations. We want you to have food. We want you to break bread with the people that you love. So um, we try to get you to sleep at night and be really awake during the day. We try to have the lights on and have visitors and have meaningful moments. Let's plan a vacation. Let's plan people to come. Um, but back to my initial point is that the problem we have is reaching people before it is the absolute end of your life because the tragedy in this business is when someone passes and they didn't get to use all the resources. Yeah. They didn't get to have all of those things. They got one nurse came and then the truck was on its way with the supplies and then you died. That's not a great use of the Medicare benefit. That's yeah. not what this is designed to do. I mean, this is extremely <laughs> useful and important information. Um, and that this was also completely news to me that uh, this the, these sort of, these kind of resources were available this far in advance from people actually passing. Um, I would be curious just to get your take on one: is it? I think you already answered this, but is it truly the case if you are on Medicare or if you have private insurance, the six month cutoff really? is what qualifies you. And that's, yeah. that's throughout the entire country, I assume. It is. And it is, is the, uh, you know, the legal, the legal language in the conditions of participation, those are the rules we follow under the Medicare and Medicaid guidance is that it has to be reasonable. So we, I have a lady that's lived two years on service and every month I high five her <laughs> and we've celebrated birthdays together. Wow. 
She has a qualifying diagnosis. She meets criteria. The onus is on us as skilled clinicians to attest. And there is an attestation statement that our doctor has to sign. Um, she has to be seen by a higher level care provider every 60 days to make sure that we still have clinical documentation. Um, and occasionally a person graduates from hospice if they plateau and they're doing too well which is funny because sometimes the reason they're doing so well is because they have someone bathing them every day, getting sure. them dressed. You know, so many things we worry about are with skin and infections. Um, our our um, philosophy is that a person with lung cancer should never die from a bed sore, you know, yeah. or the flu or strep or, you know, that, that people should die from their terminal diagnosis. Um, so we do an attestation. We have uh, criteria, clinical criteria that we have to meet. But um, most people, that's, you know, four, five, six months is accurate. Um, but some people graduate. And we all hospice nurses have stories of someone that got better. They got so much better, they didn't qualify anymore. And then they met up with them again five years later. Um, and all of us have that, uh, we call them a mascot, someone that's, <laughs> someone that's been on for two years, um, that continues to have some decline and some weight loss and more medications and needing, they need the help. But a lot of people do better when they have all of these services, when the stress is taken off the family, yeah. you know, when the, when the spouse is happy and feeling taken care of, and also when pain is relieved. There's yeah. so much out there about the terrible effects of pain yeah. and how hard pain is on your cardiovascular system and your psyche. Yeah. Um, so being in, in this world for so long, I've seen the different changes in the cultural attitudes and, Back in the day when pain-free often meant sedated, and that was that was good. They were sedated. They were pain-free. Now, um, I don't know how much you know about this culture, but we talk about microdosing sure. um, and using the smallest possible amounts of pharmaceuticals to take away the symptom, but still allow you to be alert and awake. Mm. Um and we have so many more things available now than we did 15 years ago to help people. Um, you know, I, I don't have anyone on service that's drooling. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone on service is, is we're adjusting ways to help them to sleep, to keep them, you know, um, end of life can often have a lot of anxiety and restlessness. Um, there are some really unpleasant effects of end of life that we're able to help deal with excessive secretions and liquids. And it might be more than you wanted to talk about, but um, we're able to kind of mitigate those things and help people really be with it as long as they possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I know just in, in speaking with you briefly that it, it's, it's astonishing that the, this information and the services that you and people, people who do the work that you do, that it's not more widely known yeah. what's available. What in, in your experience, why is that? Why is it less uh, widespread, wi you know, widely known than one would think given, given how incredible some of these services sound? Well, I think there's, 
my grand opinion, and there's two. One is cultural attitudes about death. Yeah. We still don't talk about it. We, when, when your grandma dies, your friends say, oh, I'm sorry, but they never hear about the process or what you experienced. Very few people are comfortable talking about the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing is, is the closed off or the compartmentalization of clinicians, I feel like. Um, people that work in the hospitals and clinics and doctor's offices, they want to cure you. And they often don't even know what's on the other side of that. They don't know, you know, by the time they've said we can't cure you, they don't really know what happens to you next or where you go. And actually I said two things, but there's three. The third is that this happens at home. And people don't know, they, you don't see them unless it's your loved one that there's been this elaborate plan to meet up at the beach, <laughs> uh, which is very common in our world. It's a, that's a thing. Um, people, we try to get people to a vacation so frequently, or there's a wedding or there's a new baby they got to meet. And we, we do whatever it takes, passing them off or asking for a partner in another county to be available. Um, that's all part of that benefit, too. I mean, pe- people want to do that. It's important. Yeah. They want to do these things. So I think you just touched on this, but culturally as well. I mean, is part of the re- resistance to seeking out these kind of services just culturally in the U.S., mm-hmm. believing that we can fix any problem? Yeah. And, and a non-acceptance of reality in most mm-hmm. cases when there are all of these diseases we don't know how to actually fix. Yeah. Yeah, I really think so. And it's – and I be, we believe in science. I mean, I would never tell a person that could be cured, don't do that. You sure. should just – you know. But also the autonomy of our elders, like being able to – tell a person you're the boss what do you want i so frequently have people look at me and say no one has freaking asked me no one has asked me what i want you know and so that's also that's it's why it's i said a minute ago it's so fun but when i walk in and say we're going to give you all this stuff we're going to take care of your wife we're going to call your kids we're going to have a social worker here you're going to get a bath every day and get shaved and cleaned up um, and what do you want to do? It's, I mean, we have a party, you know, people say they want to drink a beer. You want milkshakes, three meals a day. <laughs> like I will, I can go to Seven Eleven and get you beer. What, how many nurses get to say that? Um, now I won't smoke with you, but you can smoke if you want to. But I mean, it's really, and it's the patient is different. When a person knows, I'm telling you, when someone knows they have a terminal illness, they know that their time is limited. Their days become more important. They want to, they have things they want to accomplish, but they also in their quiet moments after I've gone home at night, they figure out what they think about God. They, you know, all those things that we think we can do later, they start doing them and you come back the next day and they're different. Mm -hmm. And the day after that, they're different. And they, um, I have very rarely ever seen a bad outcome. Hmm. I mean, it's really joyous and supportive and beautiful. Um, 
But I also know my friends, other nurses immediately go, oh, that's terrible. And they think that all we do is dying all day. But that's that's like one minute yeah. of the job. Yeah. That's one minute in the state of Texas an RN can pronounce. So um, can call the time of death. So that happens at home which is different than what people see on TV where like the medical examiner comes and the cops come and all of that. If you are an, a known hospice patient, if a doctor has signed that attestation statement that says that you have a terminal illness and you're being cared for, all of that is taken care of. The nurse comes to the home and pronounces. The nurse calls uh, the funeral home for you and all this has been set up in advance. It's a very supportive, helpful process. Everyone knows what's going on. Um, and the last thing that I don't think anyone knows about is bereavement. Have you heard of the bereavement program? No. So it's under the Medicare benefit. The Medicare has the most stringent uh, rules. So even if you're commercial insurance or Medicaid, we all, we treat everyone like you have Medicare. Um, and, um, the Medicare requirement is that a hospice company provides bereavement and support and grief support for 13 months after. See, nobody knows that. So what that means is that someone from our team, someone that was close to the family, um, attends every service. Every, we have someone at every service that knew personally knew the family. Then we start a bereavement and a coping plan that um, is driven by our chaplain, our social worker, and our nurse work together with the family. And whoever the family is, for some people that's best friends, for some people that's their community where they live. Um, uh, that's another thing. Hospice, the hospice benefit is elected wherever you call home. Sometimes that gets rough when it's under a bridge. But wherever you call home, if you live in an assisted living facility, if you live in a shed behind your grandkids, um, we then provide bereavement support to whoever is considered your family. So for most people, that's kids and grandkids. But quite frequently, it's an ex-wife that has continued to take care of you and love you. Yeah. Um, you know that story about we we were... We were terrible husbands and wives, but we're great friends. You know, yeah. people are very surprised how often that happens. <laughs> um, someone that's been there your whole life takes care of you at the end. But also beautiful, beautiful groups of best friends mm. that take turns caring and they fly in and they have these complex care calendars that we help them to write where um, that's really beautiful. So the bereavement, those people that are your family, um, there are specific timelines that we reach out to them and have literature. We send books, we call, we pre COVID, we offered lots of support groups. Now a lot of those are online and it's a lot tougher doing hospice during COVID is like everything else during COVID. It's more difficult. Um, but we then celebrate any um, anniversaries, birthdays. Then we do a celebration of the one year since the passing and then at the 13 month mark we sign off wow that's incredible um this not to put words in your mouth but this seems like a calling for you yes that is it's it's deep it's a vocation and 
I would be curious in knowing in your experience working in this world, what if somebody's listening to this and they feel uh, drawn to this line of work, mm-hmm. what in your experience makes someone um, excellent in this field? What mm-hmm. what kind of personality qualities? What have you noticed in people who have your position that make them suited to the position? I think they have to have the combo of the ability to think quickly under pressure, but also the compassion and the empathy to sit and hold someone's hand. The people that I've seen that have been unsuccessful in this business have been people that Maybe we're very, very nice people, but they um, just wanted to check the boxes. And this job takes some experience and some maturity, um, the ability to know when to fight for something and when to just say that sucks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and the and the um the quick thinking to stick with it when there's something we can do i mean sometimes a person's wish is so simple um you know they they live in a dark gloomy trailer and they want to see the sunset but the hospital bed can't get through the front door of the trailer And so we have to get the fire department involved and we have to pull in a favor and maybe they can't come right at a certain time because it has to be when they're not out on a call. So you spend the afternoon hanging out waiting for the fire guys to come. You know, we do have a lot of a great flexibility in this job. We have the ups and downs like most jobs of how we're being really busy sometimes and not as busy other times. Um, but I think that the know when to call it, the the know when to say, I'm so sorry, that's that's a terrible, you know, when all they want is to see their daughter and the daughter says no. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, I can't, I can't abduct her. I'm not yeah. going to, I can't go snatch her. Yeah. She said no. What if we wrote her a letter or what if we did a recording that she could listen to? Because that's her boundary. She said no. Um, but what if we found a way that when she was ready, it would be there? You know, things like that. Sure. Yeah. You've used words that I don't think most people would associate with the line of work that you do. Um, I think you've used the word joyful and beautiful to yes, describe the work. It is. Go, talk me through that. <laughs> what, 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 about, what about the work that you see makes you feel that way? Um, because... The patient is different. They're, they know the sheer fact. Okay, so this is something I tell my team. The fact, if a nurse called me up or called you at home and said, I'm a hospice nurse, I'd like to come over to see you at 2 o'clock. You would say, I don't need a hospice nurse. Thank you very much. Like, The sheer fact that they have allowed us to come over, there's some acceptance, right? Like they, the fact that you're there to do an admission means that there's a a little bit of acceptance and wherewithal to say, yes, we need this service. Um, 
So that in itself is a fun part of the puzzle. Like they're already, and then they're looking to you to help guide them. You're the guide. And it's different than other lines, other medical and healthcare situations where they're, not that people don't still get mad at us, but, and sometimes we say things they do not want to hear, or we tell them to people in the room that don't want to hear it. Um, but for the most part in healthcare, people want you to fix it, fix it now, give me a pill, and I want to forget this ever happened. And it's that's very different than in this line of work. Yeah. But it really, the things we get to do, and 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 the way the med- the benefit is structured. So I know we talk so much about affordable health care and having health care available to everyone. That's another way this is very different. This is one of the few pieces of healthcare that are very generous. Mm. And and there's a reason for it. Like yeah. let's not it's not just that our government is oh so generous. It's that the cost of this is so considerably less than having you in a facility to die. You don't need to be in the ICU to die. Um, So there's a very generous benefit that pays for supplies, adapting uh, equipment. You know, if you need a shower chair, if you need a wheelchair, if you need a hospital bed, boom, hundred percent taken care of. Um, Medications that are really difficult for people to, to get, if they don't have a terminal illness, become available and are delivered to your door. So um, it's just, it's very different. Medicare and Medicaid pay 100% for these services because it keeps people out of the hospital. It gives them some dignity. Um, It allows them to die where they want to die. And and I don't mean to be negative about some people want to die in the hospital with the call button, you know, yeah, like yeah. Um, some families do better in that situation. But yeah. if a person wants to be at home, there's no reason they can't be. Yeah. I mean, we can do anything they could do for you in the hospital. We can do for you at home as long as we're not attempting to cure you. Yeah. I think you're right that I, the people and families that are involved in, in, in hospice generally, there must have been a level of acceptance by probably most, if not everyone involved about what is coming. And I, I can certainly imagine that there would be a change in mentality among everyone involved when there is just an acceptance of what's, what's likely coming or what is coming in, Mm -hmm. in short order. What you alluded to this a little bit ago that the ch- that you notice changes in the patients um, who are in that six month window. What what do you if there is anything that's consistent about the changes that you notice in people who are who who have accepted what's coming for them? What what do you see? What are, what do you notice about those people? Honesty, like um, there's no there's no hustle. Right. There's no, um, there's no attempting to, you can't lie or buy your way out of end of life. It is a, it's, it's both a beautiful spiritual moment, but it's also a very basic and primitive stopping of organs. I mean, it, whether you're into science or crystals, like, yeah. you know, I mean, we hospice nurses always, 
some of us are really hokey and have all these stories about um, um, as people left the earth, things that happened, and, and there's always all kinds of touchy-feely things. But even for people that believe the end of the life, your body goes in the ground and that's it, There's you can't really barter your way out of it. Yeah. You know, it is what it is. And, and it's very beautiful to watch people go through that and their family members. And sometimes, you know, we have a social worker that works on the front end of this. Not all companies do. There's kind of some... I've been, I'm kind of salty. I've been around long enough. I know all the different companies in town. Most people do things pretty similarly. Um, but we have a social worker that's involved on the front end that helps make sure the RN is prepared for what she's going to walk into at the admit. And it's really interesting. Sometimes we hear, oh, <laughs> there's this son or daughter. It's never the patient. Never. Really? It's a son or a daughter, usually from out of town that are there to give you hell. Like, they're there to give you grief. They don't agree. They don't think he needs it. They don't think he's ready yet. Um, they always have all of their their list of proof of why they don't think hospice is appropriate. And it's the word. It's the word hospice. Nobody wants to say it. So we do sometimes. Somebody has a visceral reaction to the word hospice. We'll say comfort care. I'm here to focus on your comfort. I'm here to focus on comfort care. We say that, but it's babying it a yeah, little bit. Yeah. Some people need that. But sometimes there's a person that doesn't feel they're ready. And what we have to do, the challenge and the onus is on us to get to that house and help them to see that if you're not ready, I won't take you. Yeah. I mean, I have to meet criteria as a nurse. I can't sign up anybody that wants this. Um, but let me show you the reasons I think that they're appropriate. And let me show you the rules. Here's the rules. You have to meet this criteria. These are the measures and the proof that we have to provide to our payer source and to our governing bodies. Um, but also here's what it would do for him. And usually by the time we start talking about all the things we're going to do and that the person does qualify, everyone in the room says, well, why would we not? Yeah. Do that. Yeah. There was a, I don't know if you're familiar with this show, but probably 10 years ago, I got really into a, an old HBO show called Six Feet Under, oh, which yeah. is a show about a family that owns a funeral home in California. And I remember learning a decent amount about the creation of that show and how the, the creators wanted to bring to light the subject that America is probably most terrified of, which is death. Nice. Um, in the denial of its reality and not quite knowing how to cope with it. And, um, and I, I do think because of that, because it's so rarely talked about, there is a deep interest and hunger in the culture for what people are like when they're facing their last days or their last months mm -hmm. and what they speak about, what advice they would have for someone who was younger regrets that they might have. Mm -hmm. Um, as a very broad question or just topic for you, if any of that resonates, what, what do you tend to have? Ex what have you experienced in relation to that when people are, and you were, you were just mentioning about the, the child from out of town that gives you guys hell. Mm -hmm. I have to think that part of the reason why oftentimes those people 
are the way that they are is that they're they're panicking. That's fair. And they're they're afraid. Maybe they they had things that they wish they would have said to their parent years before and they never did and so you're the one giving them the reality of time is very short now um but it's not too late exactly yeah there is like, some let's time do it. right let's get him let's get some calories and some sugar into him let's get some fluids into him let's get it you know we don't push those things but to make a person feel good enough to spend the day together yeah and say the things you want to say and do the things you want to do we can do that. We can yeah. make it happen. Um, honestly, I feel like I'm giving you so much cheese ball here. <laughs> the more I talk about it, the cheesier I feel like I can really go down that. Um, but there is so much love. I, I mean, and I've seen thousands of people die in the ICU and at home. And at home, I have very rarely seen a person hung up on what they did wrong or, or talking about the mistakes or the regrets. Maybe in the beginning. Yeah. Maybe when they're working through it, that's one of the first things they do is make a list of all the things they screwed up, right? But towards the end, it, there's so much love. They're, they want to tell people they're proud of them. They want to tell people um, what they meant to them and what they did for them. They know that their days are numbered. And and sometimes they worry for them. Sometimes we have to help a family come around to telling mom or dad that they're going to be okay. There are It's a very real thing that some people will not go when they need to go. Because they need permission. All those self-help books at the in that section of Barnes & Noble, it, it, they are all true. Um, some people need permission or they worry that people won't be okay. But there are moments of lucidity. People that have had Alzheimer's for 10 years have moments, have that day where they remember people's names. Yes. I'm telling you, yes. Most people, we call it the rally. It's a, it's a normal phenomenon. Um, usually a few days before death, we'll have a really great day. Hmm. And they'll talk and they'll have energy and they'll expend this energy and there'll be a great moment. Um, and then they might not wake up again. Yeah. Um, you know, we have some really specific clinical indicators that tell us uh, when a person is usually within three days mm. of death. Mm. That's another thing is in hospice clinicians don't sugarcoat. We tell you. Yeah. And uh, we, we don't have crystal balls. I can't ever tell exactly, but we sit, we tell people, here's what I see. Yeah. Here's what I'm looking for. And here's where we're at. And, Evidence would tell me that this is probably going to go down this weekend. Um, we have to be really careful with the language that we use yeah. because some people will feel like we didn't tell them or or they didn't hear it. So sometimes we have to use the words that people don't want to hear. We yeah. have to say, death, died, you yeah. know. Um, but back to your question about what do we see the most of, I... I've seen some people deal with difficult trauma. Obviously, we deal with all kinds of people that 
Some have some real angst and pain at their end of life. But most people um, have so much love. And it's fun and it's beautiful. It really is. Yeah. It's it's not at all what people expect, but that goes back to the fear and that we we do this behind closed doors. Mm. And I'm telling you, I want to challenge you, my new friend. <laughs> the next time you're at a party or you're hanging out with friends or you're at brunch and someone says, Oh, my so-and-so was on hospice, or oh, I, my, my father-in-law was on hospice. Ask them what they saw, because usually people just say, oh, they died, I'm sorry. And that's the end of it. Yeah. People don't ever say, oh, yeah, all these people came in, and they helped us so much, and we felt ready, we felt taken care of, we felt nurtured. Yeah. I, it's funny because I, I just, I feel like there is this general impression here in America that people fight like hell at the end of their life and, and they're, they're, uh, not ready to go and are, are, you know, fighting death with everything they have from what you're saying. It doesn't sound like that is necessarily your experience. It's not at all. Yeah. Um, I've seen people have some terrible clinical experiences often tied to trauma in their life and or some terrible ideas about what will happen after death, which I can't fix that for you. Yeah. I don't. I don't know exactly what that looks like. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the people that, you know, the teeth gnashing and the the yelling and the screaming and the it is so minusculely happening. Mm. And it's usually with a long psychiatric history or abuse history. Or uh, I can think of a particular gentleman that had been told for 60 years he was going to hell. So, of course, he had a really hard time dying. <laughs> oh, but that's a very specific abuse situation. Most people, when you have experts in end of life talking to you about what's happening in your body and what it's going to look like. I mean, like this is... Like when you work in the hospital, you wish you had more time to educate your patients, right? And when yeah, you work in the doctor's sure. office, you get 6.2 minutes per patient. Like you don't get to sit and talk to them. Yeah. But when you have someone explaining physiologically what's going to happen, and here's what it's going to look like, and I've been doing this for a long time, and I can tell you what it's really going to look like, people go, oh, Okay. So when should I start feeling that? When will this happen? Mm. And, I, you know, and then we say, okay, so you're going to have some really good day. Probably the next two weeks are the time to get things done. So what do you want to do? And um, it's really different than any other part of healthcare. Yeah. Now, we didn't even talk about palliative care. Sure. Yeah. And I do want to get into that. I, 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 I know you mentioned um, that one of the things that you notice is that people tend to get extremely honest in, in their, in their final days. And, uh, it, it just must introduce the 
you know, the big questions in life to people, Mm -hmm. um, questions about theology or philosophy or religion, God, um, do you notice a difference generally between, for lack of a more complicated phrase, believers and non-believers, you know, those who believe that we're simply mortal animals and that Mm -hmm. the end is the end versus people who are deeply religious who have a supernatural bend to their worldview or is that not necessarily a noticeable contrast that you have experienced in your career? I feel like I'm supposed to say (laughs) that there's a huge difference. Um, but I don't necessarily think so. Mm. I do have faith Mm. and I, I connect with some people on that level that that brings comfort, but I can't say that people have a much different experience. You know, everybody finds comfort in different things. Um, faith is certainly one big area of comfort. Mm -hmm. Um, but other people, um, find comfort in having all their affairs in order or that they did a great job on this earth. You know, a lot of people need, want the stamp of approval or they want someone else to acknowledge that they did a good job. Yeah. Um, You know, we talk a lot about honoring. We have a program that honors veterans where we do a big thing about them. Um, We like to honor people's careers. We also like to honor how many kids they raise? Some of these people like raise seventeen children, and they're all doctors. Or you know, you're like, golly, um, you know, we. That's a big part of this is honoring people, right, for yeah. what they did, and and I think that's a basic human need. People want to hear that they did something with their life. Yeah, yeah. I I have to, you know, I know this is another very American sentiment, and I feel like I've heard this from people who decide to, you know, have a family or get married that they don't want to die alone. Yeah. Right. That's, that's a, that's a very common sentiment, I think in the U S I don't know if you if have worked with people who have, you know, are lifelong bachelors or don't really have any family members. Yeah. Um, if you have what this also obviously can be men, men and women, um, do those people tend at the end of their life to regret not creating more of a family, not having more of a family, or is it, are, you know, do people of that description tend to have a degree of peace about how their life unfolded? Well, I think that comes down to the, their person, their philosophy and what kind of people they are, sure. right? Like grateful people are grateful in death. Yeah. Um, hmm. Satisfied people are satisfied in death. I, I don't see too many people that regret how they did it. Hmm. Um, But I will also tell you that when somebody else, when people know that you're dying, relationships change and forgiveness comes more easily. Hmm. So like the thing about the ex-wife and the ex-husband, you would have no idea how often that happens. I mean, like all the time, every week. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yes. Like we were married for 20 years. We were divorced for 29 and this is her. (laughs) She's right here. (laughs) Yeah. Or 
They start off on hospice and then they're notifying people, you know, so they got this terminal diagnosis often at an oncologist or a neurologist and that the referral got sent to us right about the time that we're showing up to start the process. They're notifying their people, right? Sure. I have terminal cancer or I have a terrible, whatever. Um, so sometimes we're in the middle of our visits and as the story evolves and the long lost love, and this is romanticizing it, but I'm, I love that. The long lost love shows up with their bags packed. They quit their job. They're going to be here till the end or the daughter that they haven't spoken. And then it just becomes so trivial. You know, then they laugh together and they tell us, yeah, we didn't talk for 12 years because we're idiots. Yeah. I'm telling you the honesty. And it's so cool because, you know, we wish we could do that in our lives. We all have someone we haven't talked to in that long. Um, But it's that stuff is stripped away. You know, when someone that loves you, they're just mad at you. They didn't, they weren't expecting you to have a terminal problem. Yeah. So it changes the whole, it changes everything. It changes the person, but it changes the people that love them too. And yeah. so maybe you thought that guy was a terrible bastard and you don't want anything to do with him until you find out he has six months to live. And then you, that relationship is more important than your job or your dog or your this or your that. Hmm. And you come. Um, a lot of families have these kumbaya moments where they put aside the silliness because we all have so much silliness, yeah. you know? I mean, I, that's something it's really fun, but there's also kind of a maturity. Like when you work with this every day, you see, first of all, that we all have so much silly, stupid crap <laughs> and um, I mean, it doesn't mean that you handle it any better, right? <laughs> because you're not, you haven't been told you have a terminal diagnosis, yeah. even though you see it every day, you still do those silly things. But, um, it is, uh, it is just life changing. Mm. And that's what I'm saying is like for, for the person who dies, they're not here anymore. They don't, they're not going to hurt or be worried or, or care what's going on. They're not here. Hmm. But for that daughter or that son, you know, the other thing, one other thing I really feel strongly about with my patients is when they say so-and-so has to take care of me. And I ask them to come on the journey with me. Let's re- reframe that to they get to take care of me. Hmm. Because... For so many middle-aged people or younger people, this is a moment of pride Mm -hmm. and dignity where they get to say, I I did right by my mom or dad, or I took care of them well. So don't take that away from them. Yeah. You know, and, and sometimes older people are so worried about being a burden that they can't even entertain that someone gets to take care of you and they get to feel good about it. They get to go the rest of their life knowing they took care of you. I, it, and it, it also must be such an amazing amount of help knowing that you and your team are there also to support their mom yeah. or dad in, in those final months. Do when, 
when there are children like that who do want to participate and they do want to do right by their mom or their dad, mm-hmm. um, do you work with that with the children or the child to determine what what's the right balance for the kind of work that they can do, the kind of help they can provide in concert with all of the help that your mm-hmm. team is providing too, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it, this you said this earlier. That, I mean, the amount of stress relief that you that you and, and the people you work with must be providing these people is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, does that conversation tend to happen with children like the ones we're talking about where you kind of work together to figure mm-hmm. out how they can best help without mm-hmm. totally overextending themselves? Yeah, and I think that that's a big part of this interdisciplinary approach that we have and our whole team has team meetings where we discuss all of our patients and the aid, you know, the most intimate part of all of this. I'd love to say it's this they're the nurse, mm. but the aid, hmm. the the CNA that's there to bathe and dress. Mm. They're there 3 to 5 times a week. They're there they're doing the most intimate of tasks, changing adult diapers and cleaning and feeding. Um, they really get to, and you know, this is happening across Christmas and Thanksgiving and, you know, they're there on the holidays. They're there when the kids from out of town come in, they're there. Mm. So the CNAs get very close with the family and they're able to say, to kind of give some insight and some input. The nurse is managing the comfort and the pain and the and the medications and the how can we get these goals met. Um, the social worker is really involved with the advanced care planning, the end of life, the plans, what's happening, and also pr- looking for cracks in the armor of what's going to be a problem, how can we mitigate that problem. Um, the doctor is the the ringleader of the whole shebang. Um, there's so many pieces, and we get together and talk every week about what's going on with our patients and what we need to be working on and what our focus is. But oftentimes, you know, the flip side, maybe a negative to the job, is sometimes I show up and the people say, oh, are you going to move in? Are you going to be here at night? because I have to go to work and I, you know, you need to, you need to move in. And we say, well, no, no, the hospice benefit does a lot, but it doesn't do that. <laughs> I, you have a nurse on call 24 hours a day. You can always call and talk to us. We can coach you through things. We're going to teach you about the medicines. We're going to teach you how to do these things safely. We're going to, we're going to help, um, give support, but we don't move in and provide total care. Mm. So sometimes we look at some of these people, uh, at, at some of these baby boomers, the, the age of people that we're now seeing, a lot of them have long-term care insurance, mm. which is fascinating because nobody my age could get a long-term care policy, period. Mm. I mean, you can't. But way back in the day, these cute little husbands bought these long-term care policies for their wives. Mm. Um, and sometimes those will, will pay for 60 hours a week of a, of a helper, not skilled. It, an RN, you don't need an RN to mm. cut your sandwich. Mm. You know, that could be a, an attendant. So we work with other companies. The company I work for only does skilled care. We do palliative and we do hospice. Mm. Um, but we have partners and friends that we work with that do overnight care or weekend care. Um, 
Or our social worker and the nurse sit down, and I referenced earlier making a care calendar. Like, who's going to bring food, which days of the week? Who's going to be here for some supervision or for some assistance, which days of the week? And sometimes it's an elaborate uh, spider web of things. Um, you know, sometimes it's someone from the church comes every Tuesday. So, okay, we've got eyes on her on Tuesday. So the nurse is going to come on Wednesdays and Fridays. The CNA is going to come on Mondays and Thursday. Like, you know, we try to, we try to do the best we can with what we have Hmm. to make sure that people have eyes on them. They have food, they have liquid, they have companionship. Um, you know, and that looks different in every household. Some households, there's people everywhere. Some fa- some patients are like, I need some time to myself. <laughs> and, and I can be that for you, too. I know I come across as really sweet and nurturing, but I don't mind being the bouncer either. Yeah. You want the Miss Lolita out of here? <laughs> you're out. He's the boss, right? Like, that's what I tell my patients. You're the boss. This is your show. Well, but I feel so bad because she wants to come every day. Well, that's where we have the conversation. It, does she just feel good about laying eyes on you? Does she think that you don't want to be alone? Hmm. Or do you want me to tell her to hit the bricks? Because yeah. I will tell her that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, we, I've had a few situations where the I felt it was my judgment that, and I try to be really respectful, but there have been times that my opinion was that someone was agitating or creating problems and you know i'm i'm pretty good to openly talk about why are you doing this Mm. but at the end of the day i also will say i think it's time for you to go home yeah so the uh i think and i think this is true in in my mind too i mean I, i i do link or i guess prior to this conversation have linked uh, hospice and palliative care, but they really are two very different things. They really are. And and maybe just to start this transition into the palliative care component of the work that you guys do, yeah. what is the what is the difference technically between those two statements? And in practice, what's the difference? Well, and I think so. The idea of palliative care is kind of a new idea. Mm. If you look at m- Medicare and Medicaid and th- the healthcare industry. Market-wide, it's a generally new idea. Hmm. And um, payer sources for those um, for those services have been kind of up in the air. Um, and what people call palliative care, it, you know, it hasn't been clearly defined hmm. in the marketplace. Um, so the idea, though, is that hospice has a set criteria of a six-month terminal diagnosis, mm. palliative, and then focus on care and comfort, mm. quality over quantity. Mm. Palliative care is the idea that you can have your symptoms managed even if you're continuing to try to find curative treatment. So... If you think of someone that's still doing radiation or chemotherapy, they don't qualify for hospice. They're still pursuing something curative. Mm. But there are a lot of side effects and symptoms associated with radiation and chemotherapy. So having a palliative team in place will help 
manage those symptoms Mm -hmm. and take some of the stress off the family. It's not as clear. It's not as linear as a hospice having a terminal diagnosis because you don't need that for palliative care. You need to have a debilitating illness. Um, And usually just market standard, the, the line is drawn at whether or not you're doing something curative really. But there are a couple of different ways to do that. So some of it just comes down to a business plan. Who who works under what business plan? Um, Aspen Hospice and Palliative Care, the company I work for, our business model and our focus is hospice care. We have a palliative side of the house that is under the home health benefit that we will take people that are that are in their final stages of a curative treatment Mm. Um, with the idea that our focus is hospice, but they don't qualify. So um, there are a few companies in town that are more doctor's offices that do like visiting physician services that have a palliative program. And that's where the care team comes to you at home um, and sometimes that's similar to what we do with under home health. It's like a, a regular home health patient where you have, and the, the, one of the big perks of working for a company that does both is that you could continue on the same care team. So the CNA, the nurse, those people, you would have the same people. Mm. Um, now we, companies usually that do that, the, the most successful companies usually have something they do and do it well. You know, like yep. you have your focus. Yep. Um, so we, we don't go out and, and market palliative care. But when we have people referred that don't meet the criteria or that are still doing some treatment, we'll take them on services in in hopes of, and I do hope that they'll graduate. I hope that with the nurse and having a nurse on call and having support and having help for the family, that you're going to beat it. And that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but that's some of, and in Austin, Austin is really doing some amazing things right now. And I have friends in some of the big hospice companies in California too. California really has got the finger on the pulse of palliative care. They're doing a great job referring. I mean, anybody, if you're getting chemo and radiation, you have side effects, there's no possible way that you're just chilling. Not <laughs> you know what I mean? So having a team that is dedicated and focused, it's, I wish that everyone could see this as the specialty that it is. You know, if you have an oncologist and a nephrologist and a, and a pulmonologist, you need a palliative care team too, because they're, that's what they're good at. They're, they're good at managing the symptoms and and keeping the drug regimen simple and keeping managing your symptoms without overloading your spouse or your loved ones that are having to uh, keep up with all of this. You know, sometimes it comes down to, you know, palliative care. One of my favorite things about palliative care is put people on a medicine planner, one of those meta planners, and have the nurse come fill it once a week. Yeah. Nobody has to look up the times and the doses. You're, we're not going to turn your loved ones into pharmacists. They don't need to know um, 
everything about the medicines. They need to know what to take, what to watch for, what to what to let the nurse know if you see. Um, but let's cut down on some of the work. Yeah, I uh, the the acronym. Just to clarify, the um, is it uh, RCN? So the, the name of the the help one of the helpers you said that probably had the most intimate oh, relationship. The CNA, CNA certified nurse, certified nurses aide. Certified nurses aide. It's okay. an aide. It's the person that gives the bath. Gotcha. So for uh, alluded to this a little bit earlier as well. If there are people that have no experience working in in this world, hospice or palliative care, no training, no nurse's degree, um, and I know there's a range of uh, you know, qualifications and professions, nurses, doctors, aides, et cetera, how much schooling or specific training for these various roles, obviously doctors are years and years, nurses mm-hmm. years and years of experience and education. Um, what's sort of the quickest route to be on a hospice team? Is it mm-hmm. a minimum nurse's degree with some experience in the field? What, how could somebody who, if they heard this and also feel a calling and want to kind of get on a team like that as quickly as possible, what's the, what's the quickest route there? Um, I, I think that would come down to what they're good at. Yeah. Now, a little side plug that I could make is that all hospice companies are required to have 5% of their billable hours be completed by volunteers. Huh? Yep. Nobody ever knows that one. Yeah. Um, So all of us are required by Medicare, by the rules that we signed up for, um, to have a, a portion of what we do happen from volunteers. Hmm. And um, so I think the quickest way to get into it is to be a volunteer. So we have, and every place in town, if you talk to the directors of operations at every company in town, everybody has a different way that they're doing this. Um, truth be told, the volunteer program is what everybody does the worst at. Hmm. But we do it really well. But some of that's because we're driven by someone that's really excited. Um, You can have volunteers. Volunteers can plant flowers. They can read to people. They can play chess. We have a big volunteer kit. We give each of our volunteers a set of cards, checkers, Uno, chess, and something else. I have several volunteers that read out loud to people that are blind. Wow. And we ask people to um, volunteer to do twice a month. It's not every week. It's not a huge amount of time. Um, But we also have on, I have one volunteer that's a construction foreman that um, has filled potholes in the lane Mm -hmm. of people's houses because all these visitors are are making the pothole get worse. Um, I have several volunteers that are veterans that we send them out to, uh, we call them shoot the shit visits. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, veterans like to just talk about what ship they were on or whatever. And I can never do that. Yeah, I'm a great nurse. I'm an amazing leader. I love what I do, but I'll never be a veteran. Yeah, I, I can't do it. So we have a couple of vets. Um, we have a nurse that doesn't work with us as a nurse. He works with us as a volunteer. Mm that is willing to be at the bedside of someone that has no one. 
Now, I wouldn't, uh, the construction guy, I've promised him no dying, no crying, right? <laughs> like, I would, I would not send him into wailing and, you know, an end of life situation. He's there to play checkers yeah. or fill your pothole. Um, volunteers can do office support. They can come. I have a volunteer that comes every week and uh, puts copy paper in all the copiers and does the shred and because she wants to help, but she doesn't really want anything to do with end of life. She just wants to serve. Yeah. So it's a great, that's a great way to connect people that want to help. And every one of our volunteers called me up and said, I don't really know what I could do, but I kind of want to do something. And I've said, oh, I'll find you something. Wow. We'll find you something. You have to go through a three-hour orientation. You have to get a TB test. Hmm. We run a background check. Hmm. Um, but then you tell me what you want to do. Yeah. And during COVID, it's been particularly challenging. We've called off. We still haven't started back up to in-person. Hmm. Um but there's lots of things that could be done on behalf. You know what one of the biggest things is? Hmm. No one ever thinks about this. Hmm. When we get the hospital bed delivered to the house, there's usually an old mattress that is not in good shape. Yeah. Now, 100% of my patients are incontinent. Let's just say that. <laughs> so there is this mattress that you couldn't give away Yeah. that needs to be taken to the dump. Yeah. Two guys in a truck. They don't have no crying, no dying. Yeah. Go pick up the truck, take it to the dump, or go pick up the mattress. But that's an operational problem. When hospice comes in and orders a hospital bed, where to put it is an issue. Yeah. And getting the old mattress out is an issue. That uh, it's, it's, it's so interesting you're saying that. I'm so glad you are because I, uh, that this is another piece of information about the your line of work. I yeah. would have had no idea about that. You, you said 5% yes. of the overall work. Yeah, but let is me that, tell you, this yeah. is an insider, insider secret. Yeah. Most every company I've worked at would just take the hit when they would get surveyed. They would just say, oh, because... Really, running a great hospice and a clinical program, those aren't the same kind of people that are rah-rah cheerleaders with a weird exception. <laughs> um, for the most part, places that are a business don't do a great job of getting volunteers mm. and keeping up with the with the renewables and the, the shots and the, you know, the, most places just don't do a good job of it. And when they get, everybody gets surveyed by the government, mm. they just take the hit. Really, yeah. I've worked at several places that were like, "Yeah, we don't really do that." Yeah. If if someone comes and volunteers, we'll take them. Um, I feel like it's so important. It's some extra service, free. Yeah. I love free. Yeah, and you know, and then the volunteers are looped back in with your staff. If they go every other week to play checkers, they might notice something. They might call me up and say, "Jenny, he's kind of different today. I think you should come over." I mean. It's extra eyes and ears. So many of these people, just the companionship, they need, they need somebody. So, yeah. um, I, we have a, we have a great program and it's been, it's gone really well. I, I put out an email every week or every other week with ideas. That's the other thing. People want to help. They just don't know what to do. Yeah. People tell me all the time, well, I'm no good at anything. <laughs> and I'll say, well, do you, do you mind driving? 
could I have you go take supplies out to some people? We've been doing contactless drop where we put a bag on their doorknob and leave it. Yep. Um, do you like to bake cookies? Can you bake cookies for five families? I'll give you their addresses. You go drop them off. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah, I can make cookies. Or I'll go buy some. It's his treats, you know? Um, we do a lot of, during COVID, we've had to up our game with support in the mailbox. Yep. Um, so we'll have volunteers occasionally um, have their kids paint or draw pictures or we'll ask a volunteer to write a postcard to every patient so they get mail in the mailbox. Sometimes we write a card to the caregivers, mm-hmm. reminding them that we know it's hard and they're doing a good job, or uh, mailing out pamphlets or books, or there's so many things. Yeah. And we have a good time of it, but you got to keep them, you got to keep giving them ideas because a lot of people, I mean, I have a, I have a, volunteer that is an attorney and she minored in opera singing in college Mm -hmm. opera i'm very i'm not very cultured i was like what am i going to do with this (laughs) but we found people that loved opera and she would go and sit with them and bring them on her phone some music that they would listen to together and she's also one of the ones that would, she had one patient every other Friday, she'd go read Mary Higgins Clark books to her because she was blind. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot that people can do. And so back to your question of what could a person do? If a person's a nurse and you're interested, let's talk about it. There's, you know, and you might you might not be ready yet. It might not be the lifestyle for you. We're on call a lot. We when we're on call, we leave. We don't take your shoes off. Is the rule okay? If you take your shoes off, everything breaks loose. Um, you sleep with your shoes on. So if you're a nurse, or if you're a doctor, or a nurse practitioner, if you're someone that is clinical, by all means, start talking to people about it. But if you want to know more about what's going on out there with our seniors, um, Austin is this big, beautiful Mecca. But if there's one thing we're not doing well, and that's why I was so excited about you having this podcast, not knowing much about it. Um, if we can get the information out to people and we're, we might not reach the seniors themselves. We might reach their kids, their grandkids that might say, okay, grandma called yesterday and papa just got a terminal diagnosis. Let's start it now. Don't wait till he's bed bound and nonverbal. Start it. Get your services. Yeah. And this, I'm I'm so glad that you mentioned this because this was something I I wanted to follow up from a prior question is, uh, do you know what percentage of people are taking full advantage of these resources? Oh. I mean, it, it, do you, I mean, it seems like the vast majority of people have no idea that these services are available at the level that they are uh, for the time frame that they are. Right. Uh, do you, is it 5% of the population that actually knows this and is taking advantage mm-hmm. of it? Do you, do you have any idea what um, that probably looks like? Yeah. Well, and, and statistics, um, are different whether you look by county or by state or nationwide. Some parts of the country do a better job. But here's what I know. 
Yes, about 7% of people that qualify for the resources actually get them. We look at what's called LOS, length of stay, average length of stay, how long people stay on hospice is often in the 30s to 60 days, which is not six months. Hmm. Um, we also look, I feel very passionate about uh, about the breakdown of what people those are that do come on services. And in Austin, Travis County, so we I service Hayes County, Williamson County, and all the way uh, Comal County. So I look at those counties. But especially with COVID and the weekly CDC blasts, we hear all kinds of things. We are doing a terrible job reaching our Hispanic and African-American families. Hmm. Um, and some of that is cultural. Yep. Some of that has to do with um, opportunities of resources to begin with and getting a good diagnosis in a timely manner. If people aren't don't have routine health care and don't have uh, maintenance care, then they don't get the scans that tell them they have a problem early enough. Yeah. Um, but also there are some real cultural deficits in reaching those parts of the population. Mm. Um, you know, and I, I don't want to misspeak in any way, but in, in Austin, what I know to be true is that the African American community is not getting hospice. Mm. I mean, and I can give a million reasons why I think that is, um, but it's a part of the the data set that we we turn in to the federal government. A lot of these numbers are federal, um, and we are just not serving black people in hospice. And my friends and I get together and talk about why we think that is and what we need to do. Is it the way healthcare is presented? Is it the, the shape and the look of the families? Is it people taking care of their families and not getting outside services? Mm. But that's something we need to work on. Yeah. And if nothing else, I mean, just ensuring that at least these communities know that it's available. Yes. Right. And which is maybe the most yes. the society can do at large is to just let let it be known that it is there if mm -hmm. if people choose to pursue it. And I'm telling you, people have no idea what the benefit gives them. Yeah. I mean, people start crying when I'm there. Like we, I tell my team, you know, we go in big. We want to have big impact on day one. We come in with a big kit of under pads and, and briefs and supplies, lotions and wipes. And we come in with this big... Santa sack, right? <laughs> um, and books and resources. But I want people from the moment they meet us, they know that we're there to help, mm. right? It's, we're not just there to sign papers and get your insurance card like they're probably thinking. Um, we want to have impact starting day one. But people, people have no idea. Even the doctor or the clinic that referred them just said, oh, I think you're ready for hospice. And it was a... <laughs> moment. Yeah, it yeah, wasn't, yeah. I'm going to have some people come help you. Right. Yeah. And that's what I want the message to be. There are some people that can come help you. Yeah. They're going to get this organized. They're going to take care of your care. They're going to be there. They're going to have all these different people coming to see you. Your wife won't feel alone. You won't feel alone. Mm. Um, 
And we're going to help you do this however you want to do it. If Let's say there is someone, exactly the scenario you just articulated, where they have a grandparent that they know just got a terminal illness and they don't really know where to start. What is the best route? What's the best action they can take to try to investigate and potentially get the services that you're talking about from, from your team or from other services in town? Well, um, I would encourage them to do some research. Um, being internet savvy is sometimes the <laughs> issue with that. Yeah. Um, the Medicare.gov website actually has a service called Hospice Compare, where mm-hmm. you can compare the satisfaction and scoring amongst all of the providers. There's 150 hospice providers in Austin right wow. now. Now, a couple of them have two people on service, and then there's a couple of giants in town that have hundreds on service. Yeah. Um, but you know, start to look at review, just like I would tell anybody that I care about doing anything big, look at reviews, talk to people. Um, I'm a big fan of interviewing people. And sometimes I have coworkers that roll their eyes <laughs> when we get called cause they're interviewing three people and they're going to pick, but I never mind that this is your loved one. Hmm. I would, I mean, I'm a daughter, I'm a granddaughter. I would do the same thing. Pick three companies and talk to all three of them. Mm. See who shows up. See who is authentic. See who is able to help you feel at ease. Yeah. You know, what? what's a good fit? Um, I never mind that, but I. So some people are like, oh, they're interviewing. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's not. if it's not a good fit, it's not a good fit. If they want a certain, you know, if they want something that you can't provide, um, which in Austin, sometimes um, language barriers are every hospice in town has locked down and secured our Spanish speaking people. Right. We, we all have Spanish speaking people. But when the patient needs someone that speaks Russian or Vietnamese, I, <laughs> sometimes, I mean, those are some challenges. Sure. Yeah. And, and we ask you a couple more questions. The yes. one, one of the, one of the last ones I want to talk to you about is, about just getting your judgment given your your lengthy experience in this world about when it really is time to pursue this right and i think for every family they it might be slightly different but the conversation is going to be had uh as you already articulated it seems like that tends to start once there has been a terminal diagnosis about the, the patient itself um if it were you you're someone you loved someone you cared about what what is the environment what's the circumstances at which you personally would recommend hey look it it's time we we should really look into this and pursue this and uh obtain these services for for everyone are they eligible are they eligible for services if yes then we want them yeah you know um it really is the myth that this idea that, oh, I don't need hospice. I can still talk. Oh, I don't need hospice. I can still walk. That those things don't, uh, um, the onus is on us to meet criteria, to show a decline, to show that there are changes either happening or, or to happen soon. Um, but if you have a terminal diagnosis, ask what services you're eligible for. 
and let's get started because what we know to be true is that it changes the end of life experience for the person and for the family. It often changes the length of their life. Mm. Truly. I don't know if I can get people to truly believe that, but you can look it up on 45 different (laughs) statistical avenues that people on hospice tend to live longer because their pain is controlled. Their nausea is controlled. They have, their stress is controlled. They're clean. They're dry. I'm telling you, their skin is in better shape. Yeah. That's what it is. Um, and this idea that hospice is the final moment, that is truly one, one minute yeah. out of the, the whole story. Yeah. Last question I want to ask you, but before I do, first, I just want to thank you for the work you do on behalf of uh, my, when my grandfather died, which uh, I was telling you about a little bit before the interview. I mean, my mom referred to people in hospice as, as basically like the angels who were there to help. I'm sure you've received that similar words in the past, but um, just thank you. And I, I have just a huge amount of respect and gratitude for the work that you and people like you do in the community because you're, uh, it's not well publicized. It's not often well known, even what you may do, but mm-hmm. it's extraordinarily valuable to people, to people, I think, who are in those circumstances. Um, and I'm sure you actually must get a lot of thanks and gratitude from the families. And that I'm sure is extremely rewarding for you to know mm-hmm. how, how much people appreciate the work that you're doing. But just publicly thank you for everything that that you do and i'm i'm just so glad that this is available for people and i hope more and more people will will start to access the amazing work that that you and your team do um i think you you have done such a good job at uh explaining some misinformation or just providing an education about you know things that I think people largely are ignorant about related to hospice and palliative care in the community, just when it can be accessed, who is available, who it's, who it's um, available to in the community. You have such great insight into what is not widely known about the work that you do. And I'm, I'm wondering, I know I've been peppering you with questions now for far over an hour. Are, Are there any subjects or questions you wish more people asked you or there is subjects about your line of work that you think is important for the public to know about that isn't widely known. You've gotten into some of that, but uh, I just wanted to kind of open it up for you in closing to be able to state um, information or stories or anything else that you think might be useful for, for people out there to know about the the work that, that you and people like you do. No, I think, I think the people that do it love it yeah, and they stay with it. You know, I have, I have mentors that have been in hospice for 30, 40 years that, um, and I've been very lucky to get to be both a nurse and a bedside nurse and also be the operational team leader that hires and brings the passion. I have, I have an amazing team of people and most of us in hospice, the chaplains, the social workers, it is such a, it's such a niche Hmm. and, and people, when they get into it, they don't go out. 
Yeah. They really, once you tap into this, it is so beautiful and it's so fun. And anybody in healthcare, the hours are long and you have to be on call, right? If you work with kids, if you work at the hospital, it doesn't matter where you work, you, you're going to have long hours and you're going to have to be on call. Yeah. I mean, it's like a handful of jobs. You can work at the laser spa and you don't have to be on call, but <laughs> for the most part, nurses, CNAs, social workers, they have to, they work long hours, but the rewards and the feeling like it's fun is really something that's different. And I wish more people knew. And I wish that people would ask that question when they're out to brunch or when they're with their, their friends and someone says that their grandpa died. I know it seems morbid to say, well, how did he die or what were the circumstances? But that allows us to share the story besides this one moment of a death certificate. Really the, oh, the, the, the fact they died is, is so small compared to, did they have services? Did they get to die where they wanted to? And I don't mean to talk against people dying in the hospital if they want to die in the hospital. But I'm here to advocate for the other 50% of the people that don't want to die in the hospital. And I want you to be where you want to be. I feel like that's a basic dignity and and respect um, that we can do. We can get you home. You don't have to die there. And it's not pretty, especially, I mean, if we were having this conversation five years ago, a lot of what I said, I would have said it exactly the same, but especially during COVID where life has been so different that people haven't been able to say goodbyes or have visitors or, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast probably. Sure. Um, but people should be able, we in this country, we're able, it's funded, it's avail- It's readily available. We are able to let you die how you want to. Yeah. Comfortably. With your symptoms managed around whoever you want to be around, even if it's your (laughs) ex-wife. I'm telling you, whoever you want to be around, it's your final moments. You get to drive that bus. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for this extremely fascinating and valuable conversation. And, And thank you again for all the work you do. And I wish you... And I know I speak on behalf of a lot of people in the community. I wish you all the best in all the work that you do. Thank you. It was really fun. I'm interested to see what you're doing next. Thank Thank you. you.